And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 1st, the 60th day of the year. 305 days remain till the year's over with. Now, the, uh, there's some fascinating holidays today and this month. I say holidays, they're celebration days more than anything else. Today is National Peanut Butter Lover's Day. If you adore peanut butter as I do, you can jump right in and gorge yourself. National Barista Day, World Compliment Day, National Horse Protection Day, National Pig Day. The uh, poster pig for that is uh, Arnold Ziffel, of course. National Fruit Compote Day, National Wedding Planning Day, Plan a Solo Vacation Day. If you want to get away from it all, make the plans. Refired, not retired day. Uh, Will Eisner Week, Jewish Book Week, Cheerleading Week, Write a Letter Appreciation Week, Universal Human Beings Week, Fair Trade Fortnight, Cornish Pastry Week, Peace Corps Week, Telecommuter Appreciation Week, that's all the folks that work from home, don't you know? National Nutrition Month, National Women's History Month, National Hemophilia Awareness Month, Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month, National Social Work Month, National Small Press Month. And since it's a small press that publishes a lot of my stuff, I find that interesting. It began in 1996 when it was created by the New York City-based Small Press Center and the Publishers Marketing Association based in California, the land of fruits and nuts. National Kidney Month, National Peanut Month, National Craft Month, International Ideas Month, National Caffeine Awareness Month. I'm going to have my caffeine awareness as soon as the show's over. Endometriosis Month, Awareness Month, Rising Star Month, National Credit Education Month, National Cheerleading Safety Month. National Umbrella Month and National Music in Our Schools Month. And my earliest memories of elementary school was a music teacher who, uh, shall we say, got our attention, especially the male students. Well, in 509 B.C., Publius Valerius Publicola celebrates the first triumphs of the Roman Republic after his victory over the deposed king, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus at the Battle of Silva Arcia. Uh, 293, the um, Emperor Diocletian and Maximian appoint uh, Constantius Chlorus and uh, Galerius as Caesars. This is considered the beginning of the Tetrarchy, known as the uh, Four Rulers of the World. And at that point in time, Rome did rule the known world. 350, Vitranio proclaims himself Caesar after being encouraged to do so by Constantina, 
sister of Constantius II. 1628, writs issued in February by Charles I of England mandate that every county in England, not just the seaport towns, pay the ship tax by this date. Had to keep the Navy going, don't you know? Uh, 1633, Samuel de Champlain reclaims his role as the commander of the New France on behalf of Colonel Richelieu. The uh, 1692 is an interesting date. Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba are brought before the local magistrates in Salem Village, beginning what will become known as the Salem Witch Trials. 1781, Articles of Confederation go into effect in the U.S., 1796, the East India Company is nationalized by the Batavian Republic. 1805, Justice Samuel Chase is acquitted at the end of his impeachment trial by the U.S. Senate. 1811, leaders of the Mamluk dynasty are killed by Egyptian ruler Muhammad Ali. 1815, Napoleon returns to France from his banishment on Elba. 1836, the Convention of Delegates from 57 Texas Communities convened in Washington on the Brazos in Texas to deliberate independence of Mexico. 1835, Saldi Alamo. 1845, President John Tyler signs a bill authorizing the U.S. to annex the Republic of Texas. 1867, Nebraska's ad admitted as the 37th U.S. state. 1870, 1870 uh, Marshal F.S. Lopez dies during the Battle of Cerro Cora, marking the end of the Paraguayan War. The uh, 1872 Yellowstone National Park is established as the world's first national park on this date in history. 1893, electrical engineer Nikola Tesla gives the first public demonstration of radio in St. Louis. 1896, the Battle of Edwa. Ethiopian army defeats an outnumbered Italian force, ending the first Italo-Ethiopian war. Uh, 1996, Henri Equileo discovers radioactive decay. 1901, the Australian Army is formed. 1910, the deadest avalanche in U.S. history buries a great northern railway train in northeast King County, Washington. Kills 96 people. Well, also during World War One, there was the famous Zimmerman telegram that supposedly was an offer from Germany if Mexico would attack from the south. At the, on their victory, they would give them Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. Well, that telegram was reprinted in newspapers across the U.S. after the U.S. government released its unencrypted text. It never was determined, as far as I'm aware, whether it was real or a, uh, a bogus uh, telegram. 1919, the March 1st movement begins in Korea, which was under Japanese rule at the time. 
1921, the Australian cricket team, captained by Warwick Armstrong, becomes the first team to complete a whitewash of the Ashes, as it's called. Something that wasn't completed for 86 years. Now, for those that are not familiar with what that is, it's a uh, test cricket series played between England and Australia. The term originated in a satirical obituary published in a British newspaper, the Sporting Times. Immediately after Australia's 1882 victory at the, the Oval, its first test win on English soil, the obituary stated English cricket had died and the body be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. This, the mythical ashes immediately became associated with the 1882-1883 series played in Australia, before which the English captain, uh, whose name was Bly, vowed to regain those ashes. English media dubbed the tour the quest to regain the ashes. Alrighty. Um, 1921, following mass protest in Petrograd, demanding greater freedom in the RSFSR, the Constrand Rebellion begins with sailors and citizens taking up arms against the Bolsheviks. 1932 on this date, Charles Lindbergh's 20-month-old son, Charles Jr., is kidnapped from his home in East Amwell, New Jersey. body was found May 12th. Um, Bruno Hoffman was um, arrested, tried, convicted, and executed for it, but he may have been innocent. 1939, an Imperial Japanese Army munitions dump explodes in Hirakata, Osaka, Japan, killing 94. 1941, Bulgaria signs a tripartite pact, allying itself with the Axis. Uh, 1942, Japanese forces land on Java, the main island of the Dutch East Indies at Merrick and Banton Bay. Uh, Arantan, Witan, and Craigan. 46, the Bank of England is nationalized. 1947, International Monetary Fund begins financial operations. Started giving away everything they get their hands on. 1950, Cold War, Klaus Fuchs is convicted of spying for the Soviet Union by disclosing the top secret atomic bomb data. 1953 on this date, Joseph Stalin suffered a stroke and collapses. He dies four days later. 1954, nuclear weapons testing. The Castle Bravo, a 15-megaton hydrogen bomb, is detonated on Bikini Atoll in the Pacific, resulting in the worst radioactive contamination ever caused by the U.S., 1954, armed Puerto Rican nationalists attacked a U.S. Capitol building, injuring five representatives. The um, 1956 International Air Transport Association finalizes a draft of the radio telephony spelling alphabet for the uh, International Civil Aviation Organization. 1961, Uganda becomes self-governing and holds its first elections. 
1962, American Airlines Flight 1 crashes into Jamaica Bay in New York, kills 95. 1973, Black September storms the Saudi Embassy in Khartoum, Sudan, resulting in the assassination of three Western hostages. Nineteen ninety. Steve Jackson Games is raided by the Secret Service, prompting the later formation of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. In this day of nineteen ninety eight, Titanic becomes the first film to gross over a billion dollars worldwide. Two thousand two. U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Operation Anaconda begins in eastern Afghanistan. 2003, management of the U.S. Customs Service and U.S. Secret Service moves to the Department of Homeland Security, which may or may not have been a good move. Two thousand five, Roper versus Simmons, the Supreme Court rules the execution of juveniles found guilty of any crime is unconstitutional. And two thousand eight, the Armenian police clash with peaceful opposition rally protesting against deadly fraudulent presidential elections. Ten people are killed. Twenty fourteen, thirty five people are killed, one hundred forty three injured in a mass stabbing at Kunming Railway Station in China. Every country's got its crazies. Unfortunately, we seem to have an inordinate number. Now, in the last few shows, we've talked about strange happenings. And I had a, a uh, email requesting that I uh, come up with something interesting on UFOs. Well, I went into my archives and discovered that there's a real War of the Worlds. That's right. Just like the fictional War of the Worlds, there's a real one. And it's been going on since at least World War I. The first, uh, now there were some earlier UFO incidents involving military, but uh, the first one had had a lot of facts involved uh, Baron von Richthofen. Now, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, uh, the leading U.S. fighter ace of World War One, said UFOs are real. Too many good men that don't experience hallucinations have seen them. Now, it was sunrise, March 13, 1917. One of military aviation's most famous pilots took off at the controls of his uh, blood-red plane from Jasta, 11 Fighter Squadron Field in western Belgium. 25-year-old Baron Manfred von Richthofen, better known as the Red Baron, he and his wingman took off for a, what they called a dawn patrol. And after they'd been flying about an hour, suddenly in front of them was a large metallic disc 
ringed its perimeter by undulating orange lights. And it appeared without warning. It was just there. In a later interview, the wingman said we were terrified. We'd never seen anything like this before. The thing was maybe um, 40 meters, and that's about 136 feet compared to the 28-foot, uh, 10 and one quarter inch wingspan of their own pursuit planes. That was in its diameter, uh, 40 meters. The Baron immediately opened fire, and the thing went down like a rock. Sheared off tree limbs as it crashed in the woods. And as they circled and watched, two little ball-headed guys climbed out and ran off. Rick Toffin and his wingman gave a full report on the incident back at headquarters, and they were ordered not to mention it ever again. And uh, except for his wife and grandkids, the wingman swore he had never told anybody. And throughout much of the rest of the 20th century, a lot of silence had been imposed on uh, the wingman. Wigtoffen died during the war, but the wingman survived. Yeah, he spent a decades-long career as a flight captain for Lufthansa, whose directors, like airline executives everywhere, forbid their employees, especially their pilots, for making public pronouncements about encounters with extraterrestrial vehicles. He said the U.S. had just about entered the war, so we assumed it was something the U.S. sent. Instead, it looked just like those saucer-shaped spaceships everybody's been seeing for the last 50 years or so. And after the war, there was no doubt in his mind that it was not a U.S. reconnaissance plane the Baron shot down but actually a spacecraft from another world. And those little guys who ran off into the woods were not Americans. They were aliens of some kind. Now, Wade Ricks, which was the last name of the wingman, had his story first published in 1999. And immediately the naysayers jumped on it and said there's a lot of fundamental inconsistencies. Now, writer Joe Berger told how Rick Toffin shot down the UFO while flying his famous red trap lane, a characterization perpetrated uh, in the cover art of a British uh, uh, author, Nigel Watson's 2015 book, UFOs of the First World War. But according to a lot of the skeptics, his aircraft in mid-March of that year was not a triplane, but it was an Albatross D-3789 biplane. And while it is true, the Falcon model didn't make its debut until the following August, six months after the uh, event, the Baron neither flew neither it nor an Albatross, but a Albatross D-2 from March 9th to the end of the month. This is a pursuit plane powered by a 120-horsepower, six-cylinder Mercedes engine. Had a maximum speed of about 93 miles per hour. Now, the same skeptics also scoff at the very idea a vessel capable of traveling from another world would have fallen so easily to the 
7.92 millimeter rounds uh, that are spun down machine gun fired. That's what the Baron was firing from his plane. And it is true, the metallic fragments retrieved from the exteriors of extraterrestrial spacecraft are typically described as almost tissue thin and extraordinarily light. They're said by many people to have resembled tinfoil, like you find on chocolate uh, candy wrappers. But the UFOs often seem literally immune to armed attack. Maybe because they protect themselves with some kind of undetectable shield that uh, appears to depend on the crew's awareness of for it to be effective. In fact, it's possible the two little ball-headed guys described by uh, the wingman might have been so preoccupied with observing events on the ground that they failed to notice the approach of the Red Baron and his wingman which would have been difficult enough to detect under normal combat conditions because had on the Hubbardstad flyer, his flying was almost invisible, even at close range. Now, Burgess' article was illustrated with an authentic World War I-era photograph of the Baron seated in his aircraft. It's taken March, May 23, 1917, and it showed him with uh, 10 other Jaster 11 pilots. Now, the uh, you know, it wasn't unusual, according to all reports, for when Rick Thompson set out on routine patrols with rookie airmen to, you know, he uh, preferred to offer the personal benefit of his experience and expertise rather than fellow officers. And it's believed that his wingman for that day was just such a fledgling pilot. May not have been an officer, but he was certainly a pilot. Not every pilot uh, was an officer. Historical areas or exaggerations of details like these are not unknown in newspaper articles, but are generally and relatively unimportant if they don't significantly detract from the the story being told. What did hurt his the woman's credibility was the fact his story was published in Weekly World News. Now, I'm told that they check and double-check all their facts, but still. That's the same newspaper that reported Hillary Clinton was having an affair with an alien. Which certainly is not beyond the realm of possibility. Now, his appearance, though, in a notorious American tabloid is enough for most historians to dismiss him as the perpetrator of an obvious hoax, just as they dismissed Hunter Biden's uh, laptop from hell as a Russian hoax. We now know that that's not true. What the debunkers didn't know was how Wedrick and his family have failed to interest mainstream newspaper editors or even ufologists in Germany, particularly in his hometown of Bonn and his most cherished wartime memory. Increasingly desperate to see his secret in print before he passed away, his children finally approached the only periodical that appeared willing to talk to him. Now, in spite of the the tabloid that published it, his words should be judged on their own merits within the historical context of World War One. 
I mean, it may actually be. We have we all offer a debt of gratitude to Weekly World News because its editors followed the more respectable broadsheets in ignoring uh, what was secret. It would have died with him. Instead, it saw the light of day. Now, if the last statements of a dying old flyer were true, a man whose professional career as a pilot spanned most of the previous century, then the opening shot in our planet's War of the Worlds was fired 100 years ago by military aviation's most renowned airman flying a cloth-covered biplane near the Belgian border with France. And this is where the alien intruders suffered their first loss, so to speak. And although this may seem absurd, absurdly incredible, it doesn't lie beyond the realm of possibility. In the 1979 film Apocalypse Now, a crew chief steers his U.S. patrol boat equipped with state-of-the-art electronics and machine guns up a river through enemy territory in wartime Vietnam when he's struck down by a primitive javelin hurled from shore by a native hiding in the jungle. And as the captain lies wounded on the, the deck of his ship, he utters his last words in complete and total disbelief, a spear. The contrasting irony between the lethal victory of that Stone Age weapon over the modern warship was so extreme it dominated the final moment of the character's life, as well it should. And the mere fact that, uh, well, look at the Italians against the Ethiopians. They used spears, and they were on, most of them were on horseback against what for the time was a modern army. And the Ethiopians won. You know, scientific advancements in armaments may have granted modern man domination over less well-developed societies, but it hadn't rendered him invincible. So, our extraterrestrial visitors appear to have mastered forms of technology far beyond the present human understanding, but unfavorable circumstances, enemy vigilance, or potentially fatal jinks in the armor of every warrior. Baron von Gerkthofer's reflex instinct took advantage of a fleeting opportunity to fire at the UFO. So an inconceivably superior vehicle capable of traveling between star systems is brought down by a fragile airplane of laminated cloth and wood with a maximum range of 156 miles, which mounted a pathetic little machine gun. And in that moment... The difference between each craft was overcome by the decisive action of one man. Rather than hesitating, von Richthofen went on the attack. Now, neither the wreckage of the disc he was supposed to have shot down or its two surviving operators was mentioned in any uh, contemporaneous German Army field report. For millennia before, unknown thousands of eyewitnesses around the globe observed profuse varieties of UFOs. But it wasn't until March 13, 1917, that one of them was brought down. None of this was appreciated or understood at the time because the Baron, his neophyte wingman, and the, the German Air Force superiors never considered an extraterrestrial explanation for the strange disk. They could only conclude it was the latest example of American weapon technology. For some reason, because the U.S., while still officially neutral, was momentarily expected to join the European battle. Now, interestingly, the date of... Interestingly enough, 
the very date of von Richthofen's uncredited victory over an international, an interstellar uh, intruder lends a bit of credibility to the account. One month and a day after this in- encounter, and a week following Congress's declaration of war against Imperial Germany, three servicemen from Company L of the 6th Massachusetts National Guard had an interesting encounter. They were in position to... They were assigned to the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, the most important military facility on the East Coast. It was April 14th, 1917, about 2.30 in the morning. And they saw an unidentified vehicle flying slowly in their direction at low altitude and with the Piscatawa uh, River. Now, in those days, an airplane engine was loud enough to be heard for miles. You couldn't mistake it. But this approaching craft was utterly and completely silent. When it dove toward the bridge at which the soldiers were stationed, they all opened fired with their 1903 Springfield rifles. When I first went into ROTC, we were issued Springfields. They're heavy, but they do pack a punch, no question about it. And the, uh, as soon as they started firing, the craft accelerated at a terrific speed, still without making a sound. Vanished into the night. Massachusetts National Guard conducted a thorough investigation of the incident. Concluded that neither civilian nor military aircraft, American or foreign, had been involved. In fact, there were only a small handful of domestic pilots even in existence in New England at that time, and none of them were qualified for flying in the dark. And the possibility of a German warplane operating at night anywhere in the U.S. was even more unlikely, especially given the unidentified object's rapid acceleration, which was absolutely beyond the capabilities of early 20th century aviation. Now, as you might guess, credibility of the Company L Guardsmen were called into question until additional reports were filed over the following days by military and civilian eyewitnesses who described similar vehicles sighted in the immediate vicinity of the shipyard. These later observations included one of an airborne vehicle adorned with a pair of green lights. And no aircraft prior to 1920 carried green lights. And in a daylight sighting, something resembling a toy balloon surrounded by a circle of smoke, which was certainly not the description of a contemporaneous Curtis, Jenny, or Gotha bomber. And although the Piscataqua River engagement was the first of its kind in the U.S., it's preceded by the premier bombardment of earthly targets by off-world aggressors. January 10th, 1916, 15 months before the main occurrence, uh, what was described as a glazing house for sealing explosives and 
Travel protected glass containers manufactured by DuPont uh, Gunpowder Factory at uh, Carnage Point, New Jersey, was demolished by a powerful explosion. And though we hadn't yet entered World War One, a lot of Americans sensed the need to prepare. The Carnage Point is a was an extremely important munitions factory that had to be quickly expanded to meet the needs of the war effort. And at that point in time, employed about 25,000 workers. That was a good-sized facility. And the next morning, nine miles across Delaware River, DuPont's Eggly Yard Munitions Plant in Washington, Delaware, experienced two blasts that uh, obliterated several powder mills. Within 24 hours, that same plant was hit by a third detonation, destroying another powder mill. January 14, 1916, an acid house at DuPont's Gibbstown, New Jersey factory blew up. Two weeks later, Carnage Point had another disaster. Five buildings were burned to the ground. Fire erupted in a photographic studio at the same plant on February 4th. 48 hours later, DuPont's Tacoma, Washington Munitions World exploded. No less than 39 mysterious fires and suddenly and simultaneously raged across Philadelphia for some 16 hours, beginning on the night of February 14th. And this was during late winter, which was a time known for low fire hazard. Next day, destruction returned at the Gibbstown factory when a distillation house was destroyed by fire. Carnage Point was again hit by fire February 17th and 24th, while DuPont's Deepwater Point station for shipping explosives blew up February 22nd. It was remarked by several authors that uh, so many explosions at DuPont factories making gunpowder for the Allied forces in such a short period of time within such a small area was absolutely extraordinary. You might assume such accidents could result from the dangers endemic to munitions manufacturing, especially during an era that was uh, less technologically developed than our own. But the series of disasters that beset the gunpowder factories in the city of Philadelphia, compressed into six weeks and four days, was absolutely unprecedented. In fact, DuPont prided itself on its well-deserved reputation for safety. None of the company's infrastructure had suffered any mishap. For the previous nine years, and even then, a 1907 explosion had been limited to a single building at one plant. Not, as would transpire later, for separate factories in three different areas. I think it was uh, Ian Fleming made the observation in one of his James Bond uh, stories that... uh, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. And we certainly have enemy action, I think, here. At the time, foreign saboteurs were strongly suspected, even though America was still more than a year away from getting into the war with the Germany. But the Germans were unlikely to carry out sabotage in the U.S. because they were desperately striving to keep the Americans out of the European conflict, where they were as they were, that President Woodrow Wilson would side with Great Britain. Now, if enemy sabotage and industrial accidents are unlikely causes for the early 1916s factory explosions and fires, 
we could in fact infer they were connected with an outstanding number of UFO sightings associated with the fires. Multiple eyewitnesses observed one of the objects from above downtown Wilmington near the DuPont offices while the railroad workers on airplane flying over the power plant along the Brandywine Valley following the, the Hagley Yard detonation. No civilian or military planes even existed in western New Jersey at this point in time. And the airborne machine reported appeared again over the city in February 13, 1916. At that point in time, its return was reported in the local press. And after the fire, there were six days there six days before an unknown aircraft hovering over the ashes was clearly visible. And it began to display a light just before it flew out of sight. Another strange vehicle was seen circling and at an altitude without a sound over the Gibbstown plant January 31st, shortly after the factory exploded by numerous residents in nearby uh, Paulsboro, New Jersey. Among them was Albert Parsons, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran and captain of DuPont Security Police at the Carnage Point. He described how about 8.45 p.m., a white light appeared suddenly over the Deepwater Point section of the plant, shown steadily at an estimated height of 1,500 feet. It moved at times, and it appeared to be still, and, and it seemed to be going up and down or moving in a semicircle. Its strange motion is similar to the so-called falling leaf movement, sometimes associated with UFOs. These are the worldly vessels focus their attention on wartime factories across the U.S., such as a rifle manufacturing works in Eddystone, New Jersey, or the DuPont Gunpowder Yard at Coatesville, Pennsylvania, both on February 4, 1916. At that same time, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, some foreign war contrivance never before seen on this side of the Atlantic was seen uh, suspended directly above the Italian freighter Bologna as she was loading explosives at the deep water point. Early dawn on February 13th, and the vehicle uh, aloft bearing red and white lights, but larger by far than any known aircraft, was observed to noiselessly and carefully probe New Jersey's Ingersoll Rand Edison cement the Taylor Wharton companies. Four days later, at 8.30 in the morning, a lookout manning the Atlas Fire Tower outside Ashland, Wisconsin, reported a large bright light that flew low around the Barksdale DuPont plant, the largest munitions manufacturer in the state. It employed 2,300 workers. In addition to producing dynamite, Barksdale supplied the U.S. Army with more powerful Triton explosives. The observation that sightings of aircraft were concentrated above industrial military locations characterizes the veritable wave of UFOs seen by thousands of people within a remarkably brief period of time. It does bring into question, could these this, um, explosions and fires have been caused by some outside source above and beyond our comprehension? Although these aircraft were sighted after each conflagration, and were never identified. But the devastation they wrought at five explosives plants, sometimes repeatedly, suggests the intruders from a civilization not of this earth violently opposed the U.S.'s participation in World War I. No other combat nation suffered similarly destructive raids on its munitions manufacturing. While close passes... Uh, 
executed over America's most important explosive factory suggests they were being closely monitored by uh, non-human reconnaissance. And while extraterrestrial explanations may seem plausible alternatives to the hypothesis arguing the Germans sabotaged or or coincidental accidents, none of the many observers in January and February 1916 claimed to have observed a UFO actually attacking the DuPont plants at uh, and most some foreign war contrivance was seen flying in their immediate vicinity after each of the fires. And as such, documentation of direct cause and effect is lacking. Or if it exists, it wasn't going to be released to the general public. Bridging that gap with logical assumptions, no matter how apparently credible, remains insufficient to confirm uh, connections between events on the ground and observations in the sky. If only because it ignores other perhaps still unknown possibilities, such as uh, undiscovered meteorological phenomena interfacing catastrophically with uh, unstable chemical compounds, Certainly, accidents could have been uh, the cause of the uh, death and destruction. What has been described as a skyquake shook buildings in Cincinnati, Ohio on January 12th between the Carnage Point and Gibbstown explosions. This incident alone might indicate some geophysical mechanism that could have been at work at a variety of locations on that day or over a series of days. UFOs observed by multiple eyewitnesses from Glen Olden, Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia on February 3rd, about uh, six and a half hours after an earthquake with an epicenter in Schenectady, New York, shattered windows of for 25 miles around. Critics might argue that uh, these two were the only sightings associated with extraordinary natural conditions, while the Barksdale plant in Washington, in Wisconsin, in the Tacoma factory but too far removed from events in New Jersey, Delaware, or Pennsylvania to have been uh, similarly affected. And then, too, alien interference with America's war production as early as 1916 was hardly the last such series of incidents. Most eyewitnesses' accounts of the DuPont and other related explosions match uh, typical descriptions of UFOs observed from the late 40s until the present when the first nuclear facilities and missiles with atomic warheads were attacked or sometimes destroyed, which does lend greater probability to extraterrestrial explanations. And there survives at least a hint that some of the World War I's most prominent Americans were aware that their country's munition plants were being systematically targeted for demolitions by some other species from another planet. As recorded in a document from the the era in Washington, D.C., as Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, philosopher, psychologist, and educational reformer John Dewey addressed a visiting Japanese delegation in 1917. His peculiar opening words suggest he knew more than he was going to talk about. He began the best way to cause all the people of the world to come together in one world government and war forever would be if we were attacked by some other species from some other planet. Now, why would he have said something like that unless he had an inkling of what was going on? It just does not seem logical. And he's not the only world leader to make such a statement. 
They've been two and three. So, again, why would they, well, let's say, go off at a tangent in such a fashion? I mean, Franklin D. Roosevelt, a top-secret memo on White House stationery dated uh, February 22, 1944, wrote, The Special Committee on Non-Terrestrial Science and Technology is coming to grips with the reality that our planet is not the only one harboring intelligent life in the universe. That's assuming we do have intelligent life here. If you listen to any of the wranglings in Congress, you wonder about that. In September 1942, Albert Lancaster was on duty in Cresswell Radar Base near a New Biggin by the Sea on England's northern coast. Scanning the afternoon skies, the 27-year-old observer spotted a luminous spear moving noiselessly behind a wispy cloud. And as he was about to sound the alarm, this object shot down a foot-wide beam of yellow light that struck him in the face. He threw up his hands, felt a Floating sensation before he lost consciousness. When he awoke, unharmed a few yards more, he had suddenly and inexplicably fallen asleep. The luminosity in the sky was gone, and he went back to his duties. He didn't report the incident, and for some reason, virtually forgot about it until well into his 70s when he recollected having uh, walked up a beam of light and taken aboard a craft by a pygmy sized man. And his brief capture was only the only uh, published account of its kind from World War II, but it occurred nearly 20 years before the Betty and Barney Hill incident. You know, three months before his abduction, a confrontation for far more typical of such encounters uh, experienced by Royal Air Force crew members were reported by uh, Lieutenant Roman Ray Sabinski serving with a division of Polish volunteers attached to the RAF. On the night of June 25, 1942, he was the commander of a twin-engine Vickers Wellington long-range medium bomber during its return flight from a mission to Germany's Ruhr Valley. As he crossed the border over Holland in clear weather, his tail gunner alerted him to an approach to the stern by a very bright light. It appeared to be an enemy fighter equipped with a searchlight as both men naturally assumed uh, that it had be, had to be an enemy bomber, uh, or enemy fighter, rather. But as the interceptor gained on him, it didn't resemble an aircraft as much as a amorphous copper-colored spear. And when it came within firing range, all four of the Wellington's Browning machine guns blazed away with uh, .303 ammunition at the target. To the crew's surprise... The round simply entered the object and didn't come out the uh, opposite side. The bullets were neither falling toward the ground nor were they passing through the object. They simply entered the ball of light and vanished. Remarkably, with so many uh, apparent hits on the object, the crew uh, could see no visible damage and no effect whatsoever. Well, the tail gunner continued to fire at it and the spear suddenly changed position, and at a terrific speed, moved over to the port side almost at the same distance, about 200 yards from the wing. 
Now the nose gunner opened up with his quartet of machine guns, catching the target in a crossfire that would have shredded any other aircraft, but it didn't have any effect on this one. They ceased firing only when Sabinsky personally took over the controls to execute emergency evasive action. And he said, while I was doing quite violent maneuvers, moving the wings up and down, the, the object stayed exactly at the, at the extension of the wing, which meant you would have to, uh, at that distance, develop tremendous speed to catch up and keep formation of my aircraft. Well, not even these exertions could shake off their unwelcome escort. The bomber's cigar, uh, the bomber's eight Brownings resumed firing on it, again without any visible results. The spirit then shot around and momentarily held a position directly in front of the nose gunner, who pumped it with uh, long streams of 7.7-millimeter rounds at point-blank range. And then it took off at a fantastic speed, flying at least 45-degree angle, and just disappeared between the stars. After he landed at the base, he learned a fellow Wellington commander participating in the same mission and flying some distance behind Sabinsky had uh, been identically confronted by the same kind of harmless interception. November 28th of that same year, an Avril Lancaster heavy bomber, the 61st Squadron, flew out of its base at uh, Syreston, Lincolnshire, to raid the northern Italian city of Turin. After completing the target run with the Around an exceptionally clear and bright uh, midnight, every man on board beheld a 200 to 300-foot-long object sporting four pairs of red lights and a space equal distance along its body. They watched the craft proceed at a course level with their own altitude at an estimated speed of 500 miles an hour, 10 to 15 miles southwest of Tour, and where it literally vanished. Five minutes later, the object reappeared at 14,000 feet, cruising in a southwesterly direction just over the mountaintops of the Alps. Captain Lever remarked he had seen similar craft three months before during operations over Amsterdam. So as you can see, there have been encounters, I guess you could say, between Allied aircraft and... Uh, mysterious uh, intruders. We thought there was a German uh, development. The Germans thought it was something we had done. But whatever everybody may have thought, everybody shot at them, but nobody had any effect on them. On that note, we come to the end of today's show. I don't have time to start another segment. I'll be back tomorrow with more discussions about the real War of the Worlds. Till then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.